Welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host this week, Jay Shabbat, filling in for Ned Russell. Today I'll be speaking with Brian Summers, formerly of Skift and now of the Airline Observer, about developments in the U.S. airline industry, as well as a unique airline in the Philippines. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you feel like reaching out to me, please contact js at skift.com. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone, wherever in the world you might be. My name is Jay Shabbat, and my partner in crime, Ned Russell, is uh, off this week. But we do have a special guest for the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Many of you probably will know him. Uh, this Brian Summers is here with me today. He's my former colleague at Skift, and he's now writing an excellent newsletter called the Airline Observer. So, Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jay. It's so good to be back to the show. Yeah, very, very much. Great, great to have you. And uh, it's as it happens, it's a very, very busy, busy week in the airline industry. Uh, we have, uh, particularly in the U.S., where we just had a uh, very prominent J.P. Morgan investor event, and I'll just say a few words of summary here, and we can uh, hear perhaps some of Brian's opinions as well on, on any airline that he might choose to, to talk about. But uh, the general takeaway was that uh, demand remains very, very good, and everybody's kind of waiting for, for something to happen. Uh, you know, when is demand going to buckle? We hear all sorts of, uh, you know, headwinds in the economy, whether it be this latest issue with the banking sector or softer retail sales, inflation, whatnot. Yet every, to, to the, you know, basically down every single airline that spoke this week. And by the way, I should say we're speaking on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. Uh, every single airline that spoke at the event said basically the same thing, that demand, you know, bookings remain universally strong. So that, you know, poses the, the question now is, does that last through the summer, through the fall, into next year? Um, and if it doesn't, is there suddenly a problem because we have labor costs now going up a lot? So that's that's kind of the general takeaways. Brian, I don't know if you've... Uh, have anything to add on any particular airlines, but I think that was a would you would you agree that's that's pretty much a general theme? It is a general theme, Jay, but I'm gonna add uh, one caveat. You know, always at these investor conferences, I'm listening to United because as you know, Jay, Scott Kirby doesn't sugarcoat the way other airline executives do. He's All sort right. of not capable of fibbing. And of course, he said that, uh, you know, second quarter, third quarter demand should be off the charts. But uh, United bis missed guidance from the first quarter. And uh, you heard the call. Scott Kirby was not happy with himself and he was not happy with the team and he was not happy with the forecast. And one interesting thing that United said, and again, the big picture is that demand is great was that demand did not grow as expected for January and February, right? All these airlines have come out the last couple of years and said, well, every weekend is a holiday weekend. There's nonstop demand for travel. There's like less seasonality than there used to be. There's less day of the week differences than there used to be. You can get people to fly on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. But you know, United said, look, January and February are still not the best months. 
uh, certainly not as good as the other months of the year. And United also said that, you know, business class demand, they have all these wide body airplanes. They're flying to Singapore, London, Heathrow, Frankfurt, these huge Polaris class cabins, um, not as strong as they would like. Uh, so I don't want to rain on anybody's parade because you're right. The theme was business is great. Uh, but United said what it said. So, so the question now is, is everything that you just said, Brian, is, is, uh, is Kirby the canary in the coal mine here? Is there anything to uh, suggest that perhaps those January and February numbers are some kind of bad omen to come? Now, for the, Kirby himself kind of dismissed the significance of January and February. What he said essentially was that January and February didn't, you know, sort of pre- crisis. January and February would typically be very weak months, but you'd have a little bit of corporate traffic mixed in that would kind of, you know, give a bump to the to the yields a little bit. And because corporate traffic is, you know, never never has really returned in full since the crisis, that just wasn't there this January, February and they missed it. But they said looking forward everything looks great. And they said, you know, I think they made a couple exceptions, you know, China, maybe deep South America. I think did you, did you say they said something about premium on Transatlantic? I'm not sure, but uh, they, they said the Polaris yields weren't where they want them to be yet. Polaris yields were, yeah, and and so that's that's the question. You know, is there any um, when he comes out and says, yeah, don't worry about that because all the bookings, you know, looking forward, you know, I was looking back, looking forward, everything looks great. Now, should we take his word for it? Uh, I do, I mean, every other airline has great things to say about the man. So I kind of believe Kirby when he says it, <laughs> I'm not, um, you know, you don't want to completely toe the line here or, or follow along what he's saying, but it does seem like there's some legitimacy to his excuse, so to speak, that, you know, perhaps it's just an internal forecasting error. They missed the corporate traffic that should have been there, but the bookings seem to be great. I don't know. That's what everybody seems to be saying. I, I think, I, I think that you're right. Uh, Jay, it should be a great summer for U.S. airlines. I know uh, Delta and United both called out uh, the summer IATA season for transatlantic travel. Uh, Andrew Nacella, chief commercial officer at United, uh, told everybody they should buy their tickets to Rome uh, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <'cause> prices <laughs> are only that. going to go up. <laughs> right. uh, you know, oh, that, it, it's Brian, very, very simplistic, right, Jay? But, you know, this business is based on supply and demand. We've heard all along supply is constrained. So what's going to happen, right? Prices have to go up. Right. And, and Brian, sorry, I was interjecting before. Apologies for that. But um, what I was going to say is that it does seem, I mean, if you were to read between the lines, of what Kirby and, and his Lieutenant Nacella, Andrew Nacella were saying, it does seem like they perhaps got a little too aggressive on pricing in January and February. And that may be why they were the only airlines to call that out, uh, which is, you know, you can see a revenue management department, a pricing department in times like these saying, hey, look, you know, <laughs> our capacity is restrained. Demand has been so great, you know, for the last nine months. Let's uh, let's get a little aggressive, and perhaps they just got a little too much. You know, maybe they went, went went a little overboard. So, you know, another reason to think that's perhaps a blip. Now, of course, United's big thesis going forward is that you know revenues are going to remain strong, perhaps even regardless what happens in the economy, because of all these supply side constraints. You know, the lack of pilots, the lack of planes, lack of airport space, etc. So that's one thesis. 
And the other thesis is, you know, look, if, if the economy is, uh, goes into recession, um, there's, uh, you know, it's all bets are off, especially because we have this inflated cost base now with all these expensive labor contracts. And I should, of course, add, you know, who the hell knows about fuel? <laughs> Nobody knows about what's going on there. Unfortunately, you have to pay these pilots, right, Jay? Yeah, you do. You do. And, uh, you know, they, they certainly uh, they're taking advantage of their favorable bargaining position right now. And it is interesting. You know, you wonder. So I think there's a couple airlines left that have not reached new agreements. Delta has, Alaska has, Spirit. So United is one of them. American, I think Southwest, maybe Allegiant have not. You do kind of wonder with all this, you know, these economic storms in the air, <laughs> you wonder if perhaps they might want to wait a little bit and maybe have more negotiating leverage in six months from now. But, you know, I, don't, I, I think that's probably unlikely. I think they probably will do deals. Delta did their deals and, you know, the pilots and the rest of the industry kind of want the same thing. So, but anyway, something to think about. Yes, I think pilots want their deals immediately, right? I, I think so. I think so. So yeah, that's a little bit about the uh, the always exciting U.S. airline industry, and we'll have a lot more in uh, the upcoming issue of Airline Weekly. Um, we want to turn our attention now to an airline on the other side of the world, and I'm willing to bet at least some of our listeners have not heard of this airline, um, despite the fact that they have been around a while and they have quite a successful track record. Uh, this airline is in the Philippines, and Brian, in his newsletter, did a very interesting piece about them. Brian, you want to tell us about Cebu Pacific? Sure. Uh, I interviewed uh, the CEO of uh, Cebu Pacific a couple of weeks ago at a conference in Singapore, and he is an evangelist for an interesting type of airplane. It's an Airbus A330neo, right? Nothing unusual about that. Here's the thing, though. It's an all-economy class configuration with 459 seats. Whoa. Now, just for a little bit of context, Jay, that's 158 more than Delta has on the same plane. And there's actually only one way to get there, right? You can only shrink legroom so much. They're actually adding a seat in every row. So I pushed back on this a little bit and I said, like, is this possibly comfortable? And he said, look, you know, there's airplane, there's there, there's airlines out there flying 180 or 186 seat A321s, right? Or A320, it's A320s, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, this is this is a similar configuration on a wide body jet. The unit economics are amazing. And they fly them mainly on you know thick routes that have some sort of facility constraint. So if we go back all these years, Airbus said, hey, you need an A380 to fly into Hong Kong at certain times of the day. And he said, you know, no, you really don't. For this sort of a flight, if you just pack the seats on a, a 330neo, you get the same advantage. And then I asked him, look, you know, you're mainly a narrow body operator. Doesn't this add uh, complexity that you don't need? And he said, yeah, it adds complexity, but it, it, it's something that they can handle. And again, you know, you will not find a better chasm or cask airplane anywhere. Uh, he also told me that Airbus is trying to sell this airplane in the Cebu configuration, right? They're trying to explain to more airlines, hey, you know, 
you're only going to get a certain number of seats on an A321. A lot of these airports are slot constrained or gate constrained. Why don't you take uh, a wide body jet instead? Um, Jay, I know that we've we, we've both seen airlines get into trouble, right? At, at some point, they decide they need a wide body and then it blows up on them. But w- what do you think of this strategy? Very rare example of, as you're saying, a narrow, predominantly narrow body, low cost carrier goes out and buys wide bodies. A lot of examples of, uh, of as, as you uh, as you exquisitely put it, uh, you know, having it blown up in your face. You know, you think of WestJet, or I mean, we can probably go on, but Cebu Pacific actually, and I thought the same thing when they ordered those A three thirties, whenever it was, you know, I don't know, ten years now, or not the ones that you're referring to, but I think they ordered the original CEOs a couple of, uh, I think it was during the 2010s. In any case, uh, I was skeptical. And uh, I can tell you that in 2019, I have the numbers in front of me, Cebu Pacific had an operating margin of 15%. So that made them one of the most profitable airlines in the world. So obviously they're doing something right. Now we can't say for sure that, you know, that the the wide bodies perhaps lost money and everything else made a 20% margin, but I don't think so. I think it works. And I think, you know, what works, what makes it work for them, I mean, a couple of things they have going in their favor is one is most, almost probably exclusively, like the people that are on that aircraft are, mi- are very price sensitive migrant workers. So one unique, uh, you know, one, one unique thing about the economy of the Philippines is that something like 10% of GDP is just remittances from overseas Filipino workers. So you have, you know, if you think, you know, here in the United States, if you think, uh, you know, so much of the uh, low-skilled labor is done by Latin American, Mexicans in particular. And in Saudi Arabia, it's Philippines. And in Hong Kong, it's Philippines. And in all these countries. So you have this diaspora of uh, price-sensitive Filipino workers. So they, you know, they appreciate the low cost, I'm sure. And I I guess it just works for them. So Yeah, it's it's interesting Mm -hmm. that you say that. Uh, Cebu's uh, CEO told me that, you know, this airplane is really designed for three to five hour uh, stage lengths. It it works pretty well to, you know, constrained airports in Japan and and Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, But but there's there's one outlier. They are flying it more than nine hours to Dubai. To Dubai. And he said, you know, exactly (laughs) what you just said. There's a lot of uh, Filipinos that are working abroad. They want the absolute lowest seat cost and they don't mind the airplane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, you know, that's something that's a little bit unique to Asia as well, is that you have a lot of wide body aircraft flying short stage lines. Now, usually airline economics dictate against that. But in this case, uh, you know, when you (laughs) when you have slot and constrained airports like Manila is, uh, and you have, yeah, you just have so many seats on the aircraft, you can, you can make the economics work, um, or at least they seem to be doing so. Um, the other thing kind of going in their favor too, is that uh, they compete against Philippine Airlines, which has really, you know, not a very stellar record of success and quality over the, over the years. I hope I'm not being too uh, <laughs> uncharitable here, but um, it's, you know, it's not, they're not competing directly with Singapore Airlines. Uh, I believe their number one foreign market is Hong Kong. There's just a lot of Philippine workers there. Uh, so it's, yeah, they just have a lot of opportunities. I think they're, did you, I don't know if it, this was in your article, Brian, but they, I believe they're pretty big in cargo as well. Yeah, I think that they are. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, um, yeah, it's quite a, quite a unique business model. They, they kind of carved out for themselves. I know AirAsia has tried to make a go of it in the Philippine market. And I don't know, you know, I think they started to, turn things right there kind of late in 2019, but they, but it's, they, they haven't, they don't have a really good record there. 
Um, the AirAsia story is really success in Malaysia and Thailand and nowhere else. So Cebu Pacific is, uh, yeah, they're doing their thing. And, you know, 2019, they had a, a great year. I don't think we have any uh, data yet for Q4 on them, but, uh, but we'll be watching closely. I just want to point out one more thing, Jay. Uh, you were right to be skeptical a decade ago when they committed to the A330s because the original plan was not to do this, pack them with seats and fly them on relatively short stage lengths. The original plan was to be a low-cost, long-haul carrier. And if you remember, they said that they were going to fly to Honolulu. And at some point, mm -hmm. management changed and said, you know what, low-cost, long-haul isn't a slam dunk. Let's focus on what we know best. So my original skepticism is vindicated. It is. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yes, Brian. Well, anything to add about Cebu? Quite an interesting airline. No, it is a, it is a very uh, interesting airline. And I hope to uh, take the CEO up on his offer to uh, fly the airplane because I, I did poke fun at the configuration and said uh, maybe I couldn't handle it. But he said it's more comfortable than I would think. So we'll see if he's right. Okay, I'm not sure that uh, you, uh, you, I hope you're, you know, I don't know if you want your wish to come true in this case, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it would be an experience, that's for sure. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for your time. Um, I'm sure we, uh, we will be reading a lot, uh, many more interesting stories in the Airline Observer. Did you want to tell our uh, listeners where you can, where they can find the newsletter? Sure. Uh, the website is The Airline Observer. Com. We'd love to have some new subscriptions. I have uh, both a free and uh, subscription offer. Okay, Brian, thank you very much. And thanks to all of you listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Check out AirlineWeekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week. <laughs>